And so, so uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, we're, we're going to be uh, kind of all over. I, I have the text with us today, um, but uh, uh, the topic for this morning is, is, is good God, bad stuff. And what I mean by that is this, if God is all good and all powerful and all loving, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world, right? Well, before we jump into that, let's pray. God in heaven, I, I praise your holy name. I acknowledge that you are right and true. And to you belong all power and glory and honor forever and ever. Lord, I come before you now to lead our humble gathering in confession. So we confess our sin before you. We confess our selfishness, our arrogance, our pride, our foolish attempt at wisdom apart from you. As we gather to tackle an old topic, I confess my feeble inadequacies to contain or explain all that is your right to do and allow as you are the creator and we are merely your creation. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a better teacher in your spirit. We thank you that you have given us all we need to know in this book, which is your most holy word. We thank you that you are patient and long-suffering, abounding in grace and mercy, and that it is your desire that those who seek you will find you. Therefore, Lord, we have every hope that you, by your Spirit, in your Word, would speak to us, would teach us this day. We ask that you would strengthen our faith and resolve for you and in you. I ask that as we wrestle with this very real, sometimes very painful question, that the answers given would be biblical, sufficient for today, pleasing to you, and edifying to your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if God is so good and so powerful, why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Now, I don't know if you know uh, that there's actually a term for this because it has been around for so long. The term for this is uh, the theodicy issue. But pain is real, isn't it? I mean, evil is real. And, 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 and I think it's important for us to start with, with this. We shouldn't, as a church, as the people of God, we shouldn't minimize that. Because I know that there are people in this room that have suffered wrongs to them, and, and it would be unfeeling, it would be unwise, and I think it would be unchristlike to just say, well, get over it. But sometimes that's what Christians do. We mean well, but we have these these six-gun shooters of Bible verses, and whenever anyone has a problem, we just kind of pepper them with as much of them as we can. And I think we genuinely mean well, but we can't minimize pain. Christians will and do experience pain and suffering, and so do non-Christians. So why is there pain? How do we deal with pain? How do we deal with suffering? How do we deal with evil? Well, like I said, Epicurus in 341 B.C., to 270 BC, so it's been around for a while. And by the way, Epicurus is just given, given the credit for it, but believe you me, it's been around for a lot longer than him. But David Hume, a philosopher in 1711, uh, kind of made this more prevalent, this theodicy problem. It's, they call it the logical problem of evil. And it's articulated by Hume in this way. One, given the, given the biblical God's all-good and all-powerful nature, God could not know and care that there is evil in the world, yet at the same time fail to act powerfully in order to stop it coming about. That's premise one. 
this is a this is a, a logical argument. So you got to follow if a then b and a so b therefore c or whatever that goes. So he says if that's the case, he wouldn't allow it. Two, his second premise is there is evil in the world. So he comes to the conclusion, David Hume. Therefore, three, an all good, all powerful, and all knowing God cannot exist because the two don't mesh. He says. So this Greek word for theodicy comes from theos and uh, dike, which means justice. So theos is God, dike is justice, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong because I'm not Greek. But translating this into divine justice, this is the attempt to defend God's omnipotence and goodness in the face of the problem of, of evil that we all cl so clearly see in the world. So if God's all good and all powerful, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Well, C.S. Lewis wrote a book in 1940 called The Problem of Pain, and I would encourage you to read it. It is absolutely a classic, and if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, you know that he is a brilliant author, and you will be blessed by his literature in all kinds of forms. He has written extensively on all kinds of different issues. What you see in front of you or online, if you're watching, are some books that I'm going to recommend to you. Because I understand that this is real, because I understand that our 30, 20, 40 minutes, depending on how long I go, is not going to exhaust this issue for you this morning. And like I just told you, seek out other theologians who have talked about these things so that you can be uh, encouraged and exhorted and, and grown in your own life. These are some books that I would recommend to you. One, From Forgiven to, from Forgiven to Forgiving by Adams. Because things will happen in our lives that we need to learn how to get over and the quick six-gun shooter Bible verses of, well, they meant it for evil, but God needs it for good, so you're all right. It's not always going to cut it. Uh, putting, putting, uh, the whole title is Putting Your Past in Its Place by Vares. Uh, this is a great resource. Both of those I have read. Both of them I recommend. Forgiveness by MacArthur. I have not read this book, but I trust MacArthur. And what's the last title? I just have my, oh, Forgive by Timothy Keller. Again, I have not read this book, but I trust the author. My wife always gets after me by saying, do not recommend books you haven't read. However, I know that she also trusts these authors. And so I think we can both full-heartedly say that either of these authors that we have not read, we both trust what they would write in these books. But I guess my first recommendation would be either Adams or Vares because I have read them myself. Okay. So, here's the first point of today's message. There's evil in the world. God is good. And brother or sister, if that's all you take from today, you've got to remember that. Because I think sometimes when we're battling through depression or sorrow and suffering, this is what the only thing is that's going to keep us going. It's the only thing that's going to move us through that dark time is knowing that God is God, that he's in control, that he's over all things that there is nothing that escapes his sight. And I want to read with you in Isaiah. So you can read along with me in the text. You, you can flip in your own Bibles, but we're going to be all over. And so feel free to try to do that. Um, or if you're a note taker, you can just write these down and you can check later. Because again, I want you to be a good Berean. Uh, but here's what the word of the Lord says uh, in Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. Uh, and they're going to click through in the back because I'm just going to read. So, uh, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So are you understanding the place that we should be in in regard to God just at the beginning of this text, right? For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth 
and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. So what he's saying is here is, your, listen, you can't comprehend all the stuff that I'm up here doing. And by the way, what I set my mind to do, it will happen, okay? Next scripture is in Job. It's a very similar vein, but I want to read that with you too. It says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Good job, Job. Who is, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So did David Hume. He goes on, he says, Here, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And so Job, in the end of this, he basically says, So I'm going to cover my mouth. And I'm not going to talk anymore because I realize that the things that I'm saying are foolish in light of who you are, okay? So the first point, God is God, and what we see is in text all over is God is good. He is self-professed to be good. He is the standard of what is good. And so I want to start by just simply saying there's evil in the world, and there's pain, and there's suffering in the world, so how can a good God allow that to be? Because he can, and the two do not cancel one another. It, there's more to it, and we're going to continue to go through it, but the bottom line, beloved, is simply that. He is God. We are not. Our perception is not the same of, as his. And so even though there is real evil or perceived evil, in him, he is good. He is love and kindness. He is faithful. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He exceeds in grace and mercy. And Scripture is replete with time after time of telling us that even though we do experience evil and even though we see evil, it does not come from God. For He is the all good... I was going to confuse my verses there. All good and perfect gifts come down from the Father. So God is good, and we have to understand that when we experience suffering, when we experience evil, we cannot attribute it to God. It is not Him who is doing these things. Secondly, God is powerful. God is active. He is able. He is unstoppable. We see that in the text before us, that when He places His mind to do something, it will happen. So I think David Hume, who sees these things, maybe... Maybe his, his, his argument would have been better served to say, how come God doesn't stop these things? Because he, he is who he says he is. Why doesn't he, or why does he allow for us to go through suffering? Why does he allow for us to experience evil? Why, why do these things happen? Why, why is there infant leukemia? Why are there people starving in Africa? Why, why is there sickness and divorce and miscarriage? and disability. Why do those things happen? Well, God is powerful. He is active. He is able. He is unstoppable. These are the things God claims about himself. And so we have to start with here. God is God. He is good. He is powerful. And then lastly, as he says of himself, he is wise. God knows the best outcome and God knows the best path to get there. So 
Uh, I have uh, had the privilege two years in a row to go to Beach Point and teach some theology to, to the leaders in training there. And I use this example because somebody used it with me. It is fallible because I am fallible, but I hope that it helps you understand a little bit uh, how I think God processes and does things, okay? So you're going to have to go with me and try to visualize. And if you're not a visualizing person or if you don't have a good imagination, then just stay tuned and we'll get back to our regular programming in just a moment, okay? So if you can, in your mind's eye, picture a ream of paper, a, a, a little box, a little she, a package of printer paper, right? So you, you open it and it's got 500 sheets of paper in there, okay? Or a deck of cards. Maybe a deck of cards is better. So you have this deck of cards and there's, 50, there's 52 options in here and they, they pull them out to you, right? And you pick the card, okay? The card you picked and, and that's your card, right? Well, for God... This is going to get a little weird just for a minute. Picture each one of those cards as a potential reality. Potential reality. And so, but there's a lot more than 52. Okay? But there's 52 potential realities. And God, in His wisdom, in His foresight, in His knowledge, in His power, in His authority, also understanding that it is not narcissistic, it is right for God to pick the card which gives him the most amount of glory, okay? Because that's, that's his primary goal as God is to maximize his own glory, and that, and that happens by him picking that card. And so the reality that we experience, even with suffering, even with evil, even with the down parts of it, is still the best card, the best reality, out of all of the deck that he could possibly choose. And because I've changed my illustration to deck of cards, of course God would pick the king of hearts. And he wants to be the king of your heart. He is the God of love, even though we experience suffering, even though we experience evil. And that doesn't change the goodness of his plan. That doesn't change his power. And that surely doesn't change his wisdom. What I hope that that changes as Job was changed is our hearts and the way we view these things so we will stop casting our fingers and our scowls at God and rather come to Him understanding that the promises that He give, that He will give, that He has given, that He will end up being the case will make all these things well. Second point. So if God is God, then where does this come from? Why is there evil in the world, right? So if God is all these things, then why is this? We haven't answered that question really until now. Humans perpetrate evil. Look around you in this room. All of us are guilty. None of us are without sin. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And you may think to yourself, man, praise the Lord, that's not us today. And I would say to you, oh, you fool. Yes, because that's exactly who we are today. And this all started in the garden with original sin, Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Romans 5.12 tells us, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so original sin was this original uh, entering in of the, the breakup of God's perfect creation. And we may go back, and maybe you've heard this, and maybe your rebuttal is, so if God was all-powerful and all-wise, why did he allow that to be the case? Now, there are some answers for that, and they may not make you happy, but, but they, are, they are like this. One is because he was giving us freedom. I can program a robot to wash my dishes. But that robot doesn't love washing dishes. That robot doesn't love me. It just does what it's programmed to do. But humans are fickle, aren't they? We can't make people love us. Sometimes we'd like to. But God designed us, He created us in such a way so that we would freely give our love to Him. The Bible tells us we love Him because He first loved us. So He created us in such a way so that we would be able to perpetrate evil. So why is a good, holy, righteous, all-knowing, all-powerful God, if that God exists, why is there still evil in the world? Well, look around you. It's because we exist in the world. And for God to stop having evil in the world, He would have to deal with, He would have to cause humanity to cease to exist or he would have to send someone in to fix that. So out of this original sin, now we have all inherited sin. And so then that brings me to the next thing, we experience sin. So we can be sinned against. So humans perpetrate evil and we can be sinned against. Genesis 6.5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of his thoughts, of his heart was evil continuously. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And who wrote that? The last one. Paul. Paul wrote that. Paul wrote that while he was on a missionary journey. And I don't know about you, but if I were Paul, in fact, I said this when I was in seminary. When our first son was uh, born, he had colic. It was horrible. If any of you have ever had a child with colic, I've told other people this. I think, you know, waterboarding, I don't think they need to do that. What they need to do is just lock you in a room and pump in a baby crying. Just the noise, just a recording of a baby crying all day, all night, and you'll talk. You will talk. You will tell them whatever they want to know so that you can make that baby be quiet. And that was our life. And I distinctly remember laying on the couch because I couldn't sleep because my baby was crying and saying to God, God, I'm in seminary. Why are you doing this to me? And then I also distinctly remember shortly after that, remembering passages like these and then saying, oh, I'm sorry. Now, I'm not saying that my son was sinning when he was crying. He's a baby. He, did, he doesn't know. But we can experience sin. People can sin against us. And it's not because God is doing that. It's because we are wicked. We are evil. That person did whatever they did to you because they are a sinner. And so by nature, they sin. And I'm talking about grievous things that people will do against other people. Look at the news. And also, 
understand that Paul, as he is writing this, he is being afflicted. He is a missionary. He is the guy who wrote the New Testament. If anyone has the right to say, Lord, why are you doing this to me? It would be Paul. And instead, what he says is, I understand that these things are happening, and yet I will continue to proclaim God's glory and his goodness and his grace. And so the third part of this one is we ourselves engage in sin. And so before we cast that stone, right, what kind of glass house do we live in? Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so with full knowledge of some of the pain that is in this room and without knowledge of some of the pain in this room, some of us are tempted to say, if there was a good God, then he wouldn't have allowed that to happen. At the same time, we gloss over our own sin, thinking of it as something small. Thinking that it, it, our sin, is not worthy of God's condemnation and damnation. It is them and what they have done. But a right understanding of who God is, a right understanding of His standards, a right understanding of our own human hearts cannot say that. We can say, hey, what they've done was wrong and was sin against me. We can say that. But we cannot say to anyone, they deserve damnation more than I do. And they deserve not to be forgiven more than I do. And they do not deserve the gospel, but I do. You see, we engage in sin. Ephesians 2 tells us, we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Carrying out the desires of the flesh, the deeds of the body. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so there's two categories of sin. There's sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of omission just simply means this. There's something I should have done that would have been the right thing to do, and yet I did not do it. That sin of omission. We've all been there, probably. And if you haven't, I know you've been in this category. Sins of commission are, I know that I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it. And I did it. That's sins of commission. And some of these are secret sins. Sins that, you know, even your best friend or your spouse don't know about. But Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but the one who makes his way crooked, will be found out. Now, I want to tell you a story. You ready for another rabbit trail? But I, I promise it'll, it'll, I hope, it, I hope it'll be a good one and we'll bust you. Albert Moeller, he's the president of the seminary I went to, okay? Uh, I listen to his briefing almost every morning. It's what I take my shower to. I find it very good. So if you would like to listen to that, it's called, it's called The Briefing by Albert Moeller. What he does is he takes a, a, a news headline from some kind of newspaper somewhere, and then he, ex he examines it from a Christian worldview, helps us think about news a way that a Christian ought to process news. January 10th of 2023. I love the timing of this. It was so perfect for me preparing these messages. There was a woman who was recently convicted late in life. It was a 97-year-old woman by the name of uh, Irmgard Furchner. And I'm probably saying that wrong. She's German, if you couldn't tell by that name. Imgrid Furchner, okay? Uh, Furchner's trial began back in September of 2021. It concluded just before the end of last year. And by the way, when her trial began, she went on the run. 97-year-old woman on the lamb. Okay? 
she ran away from her retirement home. So at 95 or 96, she was physically running from the retirement home in order to evade prosecution. She was eventually found by the police and the BBC, who he gets this from, reports that in, in the German city of Hamburg, okay? So she was fleeing from her trial. At the moment of her trial, by the way, maybe this is important to tell you. She's on trial because of what happened during World War II. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, she worked at a Nazi camp as a clerk recording information of all of those who were murdered at the death camp that she worked at as a teenage girl. So there were those at the time that she was convicted at the, at, at the end of this last year who said that justice had been cheated by the fact that she was convicted at such an old age. I mean, she'd, from 14 until 97, she's, she's lived free. As the BBC reported, Furchner's trial could be the last one to take place in, in Germany into the Nazi-era crimes because there are so few cases that are still being investigated. Another quirk, by the way, of this is that Imgrid was convicted in a juvenile courtroom because, according to the law in Germany at the time that the crimes were committed, she was considered a juvenile. But he records, and I would agree with him, that the saddest things about this trial is this. Imgrid Furchner never came clean or took responsibility for her actions. All she said was at the time, and I quote, I regret that I was in Stuffer at the time. That's all I can say. Why do I bring this story up? I bring this story up because of this next point. God has is, and will deal with evil. Rest assured. Galatians 6, 7, you hear some of those because I've also been reading through Galatians to prepare for you. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For, whoever, for whatever one sows, he will also reap. You see, Imgrid Furchner may have gotten away with it. What if what if Imgrid died at the age of 95 and she never went to trial and she was never convicted? Would you say that justice wasn't done? I think from a worldly view, we would be, we would be tempted to say yes. But here's what the Bible says. God dealt with sin in the past. Think of all of biblical history. Adam and Eve sinned, and what did God do? Did he slap them on the back and say, it's okay, one more try? No, he, he kicked them out of the garden. The people of Noah's day sinned, and what did God do? He, he utterly destroyed all life on the earth. Throughout history, we see that maybe Justice comes at a time we don't like, but justice always comes. God has dealt with sin in the past. Genesis 6, 5 through 7. Uh, I'm just going to snip it out this 5 through 7 part, and I'm going to focus on 6 and 7. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So he said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land. But then... What we see is in Genesis 8, a little later, after the flood narrative, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma that Noah had made, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the, 
Now, it's important for us to hear this because we always focus on the rainbow. We always focus on the promise. And that's good. That's right for us to do. But hear the second part of this. I'm never again going to curse the ground because of man. For the intention of his heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. That is his whole promise. So it's not because we're better than Noah's day. Divine judgment over those who are against God will happen. It's happened with Israel, with the Philistines, with Babylon, with Assyria. So it will be dealt with in the past. And for us, chronologically, it has been dealt with in the past through Christ. He is now the pleasing aroma that says, hey, Christ has now sacrificed himself for you. So now I don't have to destroy you because Christ was the pleasing aroma. Amen. Ephesians, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you see Jesus in the Old Testament now in Noah as well? So not only that, but God deals with sin now. So he dealt with sin in the past, historically through his Bible. He dealt with sin in our chronological past in Christ on the cross, but he also deals with sin now. Proverbs twenty four twelve says, if you say, behold, we did not know this, Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? He who is, this is Psalm 94, 9. He who has planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Romans 2, 6 through 8. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by practice, I'm sorry, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. See, he deals with sin now. It is either recorded or it is forgiven. And praise the Lord for that. Outside of Christ, beloved, our sin is recorded. Inside of Christ, our sin is forgiven. And that brings me to the last thing. God will deal with sin in the future. Now for us, our chronological future, someday, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, I saw the great white throne and him who is seated on it From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So God will deal with sin in the future as well. Eventually, there will be something called the white throne judgment. And all sin will be dealt with. So it will be our judgment or... It will be the reason we praise. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if you are in Christ, then your name is in the book of life. 
And if your name is in the book of life, they will get to your name in the book and they will say, expunged, redacted, clean. And I believe at that moment, if you haven't done it already, as you stand before a holy God, as heaven and earth has passed away and there's now no veil between us and Him, as we see Him for who He is in all of His glory, and of course you haven't done that yet or you wouldn't be here, or you surely wouldn't want to be here, you'd want to be with Him. In that moment, then, we will understand the gravity of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for us. We will understand the gravity of his righteousness attributed to our account. And we will understand that eternity itself is not enough for us to thank and glorify a God who would do that for us. So where does all of this bring me? Well, it brings me to the exact opposite of Hune's understanding. Hune's understanding was, well, then forget about God. My understanding that I hope that you will come from this is that you can trust God completely, implicitly, with everything you are, everything that's ever happened to you. Because I want to show you this. So I read to you Revelation 20, 11 through 15. The very next section is this, and they're going to flip through as I read. This is Revelation 21, 1 through 5. So right after what we just read comes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's a good spot for an amen. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So, here's some things that Hume didn't put in his argument. One, God is grieved by sin. Deeply. God cannot, I'll just put it to you this way. God is more grieved by sin than you are. And that may be very hard for you to imagine if you are the ones that I'm talking about this morning that was, that was sinned against grievously. I am here to assure you that God cares and hurts about that more than you do. Pause for dramatic effect because you, you need to understand that. That's why Christ came. Because of you and your pain and your suffering and for the pain and suffering that you have also caused others. But God is grieved by sin. The God of Scripture is not unfeeling towards you. 
He is not impotent towards you. Jesus weeps with you, for you, and over you. God loves you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. God emptied himself of his eternal glory and took on human flesh for you. That's the part that Hume is missing here. He doesn't understand that the love of God is so deep, so rich, so wide. What can separate us from that? Nothing, neither height nor depth nor anything, or principalities or powers. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And the last thing is this. You can trust God because he is grieved by sin, because he loves you, and because he's holy, and he's just. And just like Imgrid, who did not escape justice. Any of those other men and women who should have been on trial and who didn't go on trial, do you think that they just got off scot-free? Brother or sister, if there was no repentance, there is no salvation. And if there is no salvation, what awaits them is the white throne judgment where eventually they will be cast into hell for all of eternity. There is nothing worse for the person who has offended you than for them to be separated from the Lord for all of eternity. In fact, it is so bad to be separated from God for all of eternity. Christ himself told us we ought to pray for those who persecute us. And we ought to seek to forgive them as Christ has forgiven us because of the depth of what that punishment will be. So do not be deceived. God is holy. He is just. No sin will go unpunished. It will either it will either receive its punishment in Christ on the cross, which we receive forgiveness from, or it will receive its punishment through all of eternity. And so I want to end by saying this. I know pain's real. I know evil is real. And I am not here to minimize the pain of your past. I love you, and I would, I would never do that to you. But what I want to do is I want to encourage you this morning. I want to give you hope. I want to give you peace. I want to give you life. I want you to stop living under the power of somebody else's sin. I want you to experience freedom and grace and justice. I want you to know that that account is closed and will be dealt with and that you can lay that at the foot of the cross and you don't have to carry that anymore. That's the gospel. Not only for your salvation and for your sin, but for the sins of those who have perpetrated against you, you don't have to worry or carry that ever again. So if God is all good and all powerful, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Because humans are fallen and sinful. But an all-powerful good God and the existence of evil are not contradictory. In fact, they find their fulfillment in Christ. God feels grief and carries our burdens and we can find comfort in trusting relationship with the one who went to the cross for us and who ultimately will wipe every tear from our eye. So I want to invite you this morning, if you are carrying pain, sorrow, grief, bitterness, or unforgiveness, I want to ask you, will you lay it down at the foot of the cross this morning? Will you let this morning be your morning where you release that to the Lord and allow Him to deal with that? where you stop carrying the bitterness and the unforgiveness? 
because Jesus wants to heal you and give you life and life in abundance. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your righteous justice. We thank you for the forgiveness that we did not deserve. We thank you that you sent your son to cover us with your grace. Lord Jesus, by your grace, we want to be a people who can forgive. We want to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But that's not easy for us to do. So we need more of you and less of us. We need more of your spirit, more of your grace. Lord, we want for you to change our hearts and our minds, to renew us, to recreate us, to remake us in your image of Christ, the one who has told us, the one who has imitated and illustrated for us. While we were yet enemies, while we were yet dead in our sin, Christ died for us, and that is what you have called us to do as well. Help us, God, we pray. And for those of us who have accepted Jesus as our own personal Lord and Savior, Lord, we thank you and praise you for that gift and that one day we can look forward to you making all things right, all things whole, all things good. In your name, you will wipe away every scar and tear and the only scars in heaven will be the ones on your precious body. It's in your name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.